Check out Unpacking Israeli History podcast. From the history of infamous terror groups, Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey there, history fans. We're off this week so I can catch up after the holidays. But don't worry. We've got plenty of classic shows to tide you over. Please enjoy these flashback episodes from the TDI HC Vault. And be sure to meet me back here next Tuesday for a brand new episode. Hello, everyone. Eve's here. If you've been listening to the last several episodes, then you know that I've been speaking to you from the comfort of my own home. I'm still at home enjoying the beginning of the new year, but it's another day and you know that means there's more history to tell. So let's get into another episode. The day was January 2nd, 1942. 33 members of a Nazi spy ring headed by Frederick, also known as Fritz Duquesne, were sentenced to serve time in prison. Before the U.S. entered World War II in December of 1941, Germany was already conducting espionage in the U.S. German-American spies had managed to gather important information from military and industrial sites. William Siebold was one of many people Nazi Germany enlisted to be spies on U.S. soil. Siebold was born in Germany and fought for his birth country in World War I. But after the war ended, he moved to the U.S. and became a citizen there. He worked in industrial and aircraft plants in the U.S. and South America. But when he took a trip to Germany to visit his family in 1939, the Nazis recruited him, through threats and intimidation, to work as a spy when he returned to the U.S. Concerned about the safety of his family in Germany, Siebold agreed and started his training to become a spy. He made it back to the U.S. in February of 1940, using the alias Harry Sawyer and the codename Tramp. Siebold seemed like an ideal recruit. But while he was in Germany, he told officials at the American consulate in Cologne that he was willing to cooperate with the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation. When he got back to New York City, he posed as a diesel engineering consultant. The FBI helped him set up a business office in Manhattan where he would meet with spies who would give him information to pass to the Gestapo, or Nazi Germany's secret police. 
The office was decked out with hidden microphones, cameras, and a two-way mirror. The FBI also built Seabold a shortwave radio transmitting station on Long Island. From there, FBI agents sent messages to Germany and received messages from the Nazis through that communication line. Germany was unaware that their messages were being monitored by U.S. agents. One spy who visited Siebold's Manhattan office was Frederick Joubert Duquesne, who ran a large German spy ring. Duquesne was a South African boar and a U.S. citizen with a long history of hating the British. As a German spy, Duquesne gathered information about U.S. and British shipping records and U.S. military technology. Over the course of several meetings, he revealed to Siebold plans for a type of bomb being made in the U.S., and he told Siebold how fires could be started in industrial plants. For 16 months, the FBI worked with Siebold to collect a ton of information on Nazi spies working in the U.S., Mexico, and South America. In June of 1941, the FBI rounded up a band of Nazi spies. 19 members of the spy ring pled guilty. That December, the remaining 14 members were found guilty at trial. And on January 2nd of the next year, all 33 people in the spy ring were sentenced to prison. Duquesne got 18 years in prison on espionage charges and a $2,000 fine for violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act. The act, passed in 1938, requires anyone who does political or advocacy work on behalf of foreign entities to disclose their relationship with the foreign entity and any relevant activities in finances. After the German spies were convicted, the U.S. government relocated Siebold to California and gave him a new identity. Diagnosed with manic depression, he was committed to Napa State Hospital in 1965. He died of a heart attack five years later. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any burning questions, you can send them to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. And if you would prefer, you can send them to us via email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you here again same time tomorrow. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that gives a quick look at something that happened a long time ago today. I'm Gabe Lusier, and in this episode, we're examining one of the least popular policies of one of America's least popular presidents. The day was January 2nd, 1974. President Richard Nixon established a maximum speed limit of 55 miles per hour on every highway in the United States. Known as the Emergency Highway Energy Conservation Act, the law was primarily intended to conserve the nation's fuel supply in response to the ongoing fuel crisis of the 1970s. The results were a mixed bag, but the law remained in effect regardless for more than two decades. Prior to Nixon's law, each state had the right to set its own speed limits for all the roads within its borders. This had resulted in highway speed limits that ranged from 40 miles per hour all the way up to 80 miles per hour. 
Cars are less fuel-efficient when driven at higher speeds, but following World War II, the U.S. wasn't worried about its gas supply. Like other industrialized nations, the country helped itself to inexpensive Middle Eastern oil from 1950 until the early 1970s. The gravy train finally ground to a halt in 1973. The Arab nations of OPEC, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, took exception to the West's support of Israel in the recent Yom Kippur War, also known as the Ramadan War. In protest, the group abruptly ceased all oil shipments to the United States, as well as Japan and Western Europe. When OPEC eventually started selling again, it raised its oil prices to four times what they had been previously. The embargo struck a major blow to American and European economies, highlighting just how dependent the West had become on foreign oil. The sweeping energy crisis led to gas shortages and desperate attempts at fuel conservation and rationing. Nixon's federal law on speed limits was part of the American government's response to the OPEC oil embargo. It was hoped that by forcing people to drive slower, less gasoline would be wasted. Of course, Congress recognized that a 55-mile-per-hour speed limit wouldn't go over well in some states, especially the western ones, which had the longest, straightest, and dullest rural highways in the country. That is why Congress enacted the law along with an ultimatum to the states. Comply with the national speed limit or give up all of your funding from the Department of Transportation. With their federal highway money on the line, most states lowered their speed limits right away. But even if a state grudgingly complied with the law, how to enforce it was still up to them. For example, in Nevada, state police only issued full speeding tickets to drivers going more than 70 miles per hour. Anything less, and the offender was just given a $5 fine for energy wasting. Of course, the big question is whether the national speed limit actually reduced fuel consumption as intended. The answer to that is still up for debate. The law did curb petroleum consumption by over 160,000 barrels per day, but that only represents a drop in demand of about 1% or 2% hardly enough to solve an energy crisis. Part of the reason the savings were so slight was that by the time Nixon's law took effect, 21 states had already adopted maximum speed limits of 55 miles per hour or less. That means a large portion of the country was already driving super slowly on the highway, so the national speed limit didn't reduce their fuel consumption any further. It also didn't help that the lower speed limit only impacted highway driving, which is already better for fuel economy than driving at lower speeds on congested roads and side streets. The law didn't save as much gas as the government had hoped, but the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit remained in place even after the oil crisis had ended. By 1978, Studies showed a steady decline in highway fatalities in the years since the lower speed limit was introduced. Some analysts pointed out that the reduction in deaths was more likely due to a general decrease in recreational driving because of high cost and scarcity of gas. 
but the government insisted it was actually due to the national speed limit. The Department of Transportation even launched a publicity campaign using the slogan, 55 Saves Lives. Take a listen. 55 saves lives. Since 1974, 55 has been the single biggest factor in reducing highway deaths by more than 36,000 people. One of them could be you. 55 saves lives. By the 1980s, the American public still widely approved of the national speed limit, even if most motorists didn't abide by it themselves. But the law still had many vocal detractors, and one of the most prominent was rock star Sammy Hagar, the future lead singer of the band Van Halen. In 1984, Hagar was pulled over while driving through New York State. He had been going seven miles over the national speed limit, and when the cop said he gave tickets for anything over 60, the musician replied, quote, I can't drive 55. As the cop wrote out the ticket, Hagar began scribbling down the lyrics for what ultimately became his first hit song. It was titled, you guessed it, I Can't Drive 55. The song captured the sentiments of a growing number of citizens, not to mention state governments and industries. In 1987, Congress acknowledged the backlash by raising the speed limit to 65 miles per hour on all rural interstate highways. Then, in 1995, the law was scrapped altogether, and the right to determine speed limits was handed back to the individual states. After more than 20 years, the long, strange experiment was finally over. It was a sad day for some. After all, small towns along the highways had made a fortune off of speeding fines and fees, and those in the radar detector business had sold more units than they likely ever would again. But for everyone else, the law's repeal was a welcome return to the days of sensible speeding, to a time when daily commutes went by a little faster, and nobody wrote rock songs about speed limits. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always drop me a line at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know. What were they thinking? 
backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 